all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome back to episode 468 of The Whole View. We are covering the Delta variant today. And Sarah, I will say it was you during our last COVID show that said, we're not going to talk about this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, hey, now, be careful what you say. (laughs) Uh I I mean, I think we had about three or four. This is our last COVID show. (laughs) So um, I guess guess that's just wishful thinking. Um, I also, um, by the way, Happy podcasting anniversary. Thank you. You know what I didn't realize? So it's been nine years, by the way, listeners. If you've listened from the beginning, I cannot express to you both my gratitude and apologies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Equal measure. Yes, equal measure for sure. It's also my five-year anniversary with uh, Beauty Counter, my like non-toxic business. So wow. it's interesting to think that I've actually been doing non-toxic living and lifestyle actually longer than we did food at this point when it comes to like the trajectory of my journey with this whole thing. So, and the podcast has been around for 90% of it. <laughs> We've been doing it a long yep. time. We got gray hairs to show for it, but I don't know what you're talking about. No, not at all. Um, we are <laughs> so, so super, young. super intense, super intense, uh, serious topic for nine, our ninth anniversary yeah. show. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's not, you know, it's not a party unless you are a global pandemic and then you're feeling real good about your success. Um, if I, if I were the COVID virus, <laughs> unfortunately we're on the other side of that coin. So um, I do want to mention before we jump in, Sarah's going to go through a lot of science and um, we'll mention also and put the details in the show notes of the other COVID shows. We're going to kind of jump in with the perspective that you've got that base knowledge um, because we went so into detail. So if this is your first show with us, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We're going to ask you to pause and rewind um, to the other shows first, just because it will be beneficial to have that scientific base knowledge. We have gone through everything you could possibly think of. Um, As a vaccine hesitant person myself, I questioned Sarah a lot. And we went through (laughs) the pros and cons and all that kind of stuff. And so I just I really want to encourage you to listen to those shows before we jump into this one. Um, And also, if you're really curious and interested in more, we are going to be doing a live Q&A with our Patreon fam um, with any follow-up questions that anyone wants to discuss with this. And we will be sending out an email with those details to our subscribers. So if you're not yet a Patreon, then I would recommend you go get in on that before we send out the email with the live information. Um, 
And yeah, I don't know. Sarah, are you ready to jump in? Is there anything else I forgot? Um, no, I'm, I'm definitely ready. I think it's a really important caveat that we have covered both COVID-19 as a new infectious disease, as well as we've done six shows uh, on the science behind the COVID-19 vaccines as well. So, because we're going to kind of talk about, you know, we're talking about Delta, we're kind of covering a little bit of all of that. So we're really, um, really want to emphasize that this is build, building on the groundwork that we've already laid in about a dozen shows, I think. Yes. And we will put all of them in the show notes, which you can find at paleomom.com or realeverything.com. So if you're trying to figure out which ones you want to listen to, um, we'll have the names of the numbers and the description so that you can figure out exactly, you know, where you want to jump in on your educational journey. I also want to remind you that we are not medical professionals, that we cannot give medical advice. We are coming from this perspective on our own experiences and also from a lot of science. Sarah has 16 pages of notes with lots of scientific (laughs) references. I'm not exaggerating. That's literally what we come to these shows with. So if you're looking for those references, um, they are also in the show notes and you can read all the studies and all the information um, directly that way as well. We, we are all about transparency, truth, and science here. So it felt really important to cover the Delta variant with how many things changed last week, the new um, mask guidance from the CDC, um, the data that was released, some new studies, um, and just the the way that this is being covered in the media, it felt really important to to kind of drop everything and um, do another COVID show um, and really just focus on the Delta variant, um, like what it is and how it's different and why we're seeing things like spikes in infections and guidance changing as, as a result. And I think the place to start is really just with the name Delta. So when the variant first emerged in India in December 2020, it uh, was also called the uh, Indian variant of concern, or its more technical scientific name was B16172. Um, the, the reason why it's called Delta is the World Health Organization moved to a naming system for just the variants of concern. So a variant of concern is um, a uh, version of the novel coronavirus where the mutations that that particular version have make it different in a way that's not good for us humans. So they're more transmissible, meaning they're more contagious, or they cause more severe illness or more death, or they're able to evade immune responses, whether that's from vaccination or from previous natural infection. So something about the particular collections of mutations that that version of COVID-19 has that makes it a problem, makes it something that we need to be concerned about. So the World Health Organization was looking for a naming system that was both getting away from scientific collections of numbers and letters. There's actually multiple different scientific naming systems. So also all of the variants have multiple different just random (laughs) numbers that don't mean anything to the general public. They don't mean anything to me either. Um, And also getting away from stigmatizing names based on the countries where the variants first uh, emerged or were identified. And so what they settled on was 
naming them based on the Greek alphabet in order of identification. So the Delta variant gets the the name Delta because it was the fourth identified variant of concern, and Delta is the Greek equivalent of the letter D, the fourth letter of the alphabet. And that is all there, there is to the name, but it is definitely uh, easier to say than B16172. Um, so we're all appreciative of a, a more straightforward naming system that doesn't stigmatize the country of origin. Um, there's some really interesting mutations, uh, interesting scientifically, obviously not interesting from a humanitarian perspective, um, that make Delta a variant of concern and that have given the Delta variant this um, competitive advantage that has allowed it to spread so quickly globally. What we already covered in our previous shows on the novel coronavirus is that the, the novel coronavirus, coronaviruses themselves, don't actually mutate very quickly compared to other viruses like influenza. But because it's novel, which means humans have never encountered it before, it has spread globally. And um, because of a, a really sort of hodgepodge in terms of other mitigation measures in different countries and within countries of shutdowns and social distancing and masking and quarantines and all of these different things, it has had a lot of ability to mutate or a lot of opportunity to mutate. So it doesn't mutate quickly, but there've already been 200 million-ish confirmed global cases. Um, that's probably an underestimate by at least a factor of three. So it, it's not that it mutates quickly. It just has so much opportunity because of this particular situation. And so um, what what these particular mutations do is they basically make Delta able to infect our cells more, more readily, um, able to divide faster. And that means that it kind of wins out on other variants. So if it can get into our cells easier than say the alpha variant, and it can replicate faster than say the beta variant, then when different variants are spreading in an area, Delta basically is the winner. It's like the 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 Olympic gold champion of of transmissibility of COVID nineteen viruses, um, and it actually has some some really interesting mutations. There's some good news in the mutations, um, and one really particularly good thing to focus on is some of the mutations that we've seen in other COVID nineteen variants that Delta does not have. So, for example, it does not have the N501Y mutation that alpha, beta, and gamma have that um, actually is what made those other variants of concern so problematic, so able to invade our cells so easily, which effectively lowered the infectious dose, like the amount of virus you'd have to be exposed to in order to get sick. Um, also, we're about to get into some fun uh, scientific um nicknames for mutations. So another mutation that Delta doesn't have is technically the E484K mutation, but scientists call it the EEK mutation, <laughs> which I believe can only be said that way. Um, EEK, uh, which also is totally the right, right word, name, nickname for this mutation because it also is a mutation that allowed the virus to evade the protection from the vaccine. It, this is what the gamma variant had, um, and so um, and so that was more dangerous even for vaccinated people. So Delta does not have that. That's also very good news. Um, it actually can I ask means a question? That the yeah. What sure. happened to Gamma? Did he 
Did he die out? I feel like there's a pun there, but I can't find it because I'm too worried. I'm eking out. (laughs) So Gamma is still the dominant variant in South America. Um, And there is some Gamma kind of, you know, there, there is some Gamma still in other places. There's a little bit of Gamma still in America and in Canada. Um, But Delta, because of the mutations it does have, um, is so much more transmissible that it's actually, it's, it's a really interesting um, situation. I was sort of reading an article where uh, they were talking about um, the, the selection pressures on mutations kind of either pull in the direction of increased transmissibility or pull in the direction of evading our immune responses. And so Delta is kind of like the worst case scenario in terms of transmissibility, but means it's not the worst case scenario in terms of evading our immune responses. And you kind of think of it as a tug of war. The mutations either pull pull the entire rope over to one side, transmissibility, that's where Delta is kind of on that extreme, or pull to the other side where it's more um, problematic because vaccination would be less protective, for example. And that's where sort of gamma is. So because Delta is... Um, sort of a survival of the fittest, right? It is the fittest variant uh, thus far. Um, it's actually in most places been able been able to suppress gamma variant just by being uh, so much more contagious. I, I think that's a kind of fascinating thing to think about and makes sense. I, I think also there's a lot of like uh, pull in my head about which one I would rather go around and that doesn't make me feel like a good human you know what I'm but I'm like Mm -hmm. well for me personally uh, you know I benefit from x from the perspective of population as a whole maybe it would be different so I'm just gonna like walk us away from that conversation because I can't control (laughs) it no matter what I think um and maybe we can talk about what in particular makes delta so much worse Yeah, so it's really a perfect storm of mutations that each one by themselves is kind of like not a big deal, wouldn't actually um, be enough to to label that variant a variant of concern, but it's kind of how they all work together. So um, another cool name coming up, Uh, the scientific name D614G uh, mutation, a.k.a. Doug. (laughs) I love that you laughed about that. You know, it's not nearly as cool as Eek, right? (laughs) It's not as cool as Eek, um, but it's still still epic. So Doug is not cool. I apologize to all of our listeners named Doug right now. Um, Doug is not cool because Doug increases the density of the spike proteins on the surface of the virus. So that basically means that as the virus is sort of bumping around, Um, it's just going to increase the probability that one of those spike proteins hits the ACE2 receptor in our airway cells and then is able to to enter the cells. So it just, it basically means that each cell is a, has more opportunity to find its receptor to bind. Um, that's mostly the end of the, the fun names. Um, P681R is another mutation in the spike protein that what? they're not uh, calling seems... that one per they should call it per um, maybe let's just make up good names and then <laughs> the scientists I'm sure who are listening to the show will, will um, take those up. Mm-hmm. Um, so the per mutation um, 
is what leads to higher viral loads. Um, so people, this is a spoiler for later in the show, people who are infected with Delta have about a thousand times more virus in their respiratory tract than other variants of concern, um, which means that that's part of why Delta is so much easier to spread because especially in that day before symptoms window, when you're contagious and shedding virus and don't know that you're sick yet, there's a thousand times more virus coming out of your body every time you cough, you know, sneeze, um, shout, sing, um, you know, all of those things that we know are, are spreading um, respiratory droplets as well as aerosols, right? So we also know that COVID-19 is spread by aerosols. Um, and so all of those things are helping to push virus out of your body and uh, the virus ideally would like to get to the next body. Uh, L452R, where Stacey, I'm relying on you to... I came up with the last one. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to call this one laser and just add a whole <laughs> sound in the middle that's not there. It's fair. Um, it's fair. There's a five in the middle. Okay. You know, it's a backward Z. Um, so laser seems to uh, affect the receptor binding domain of the spike protein, which basically means that antibodies aren't quite as good at neutralizing Delta, certainly compared to the original novel coronavirus. It's not as bad as some of the other variants of concern, which again, we'll, we'll get into in more detail in a bit. Uh, T478K, it's definitely your time. Teak is all I can come up with, and I'm sorry, it needs to be better. I'll, I'll do better next time. Okay. Um, so this one makes the spike protein bind more strongly with the ACE2 receptor. Um, so it's something called binding affinity, and that basically makes it so that it's easier for the virus to get inside the cell. So more spike protein, it binds more strongly, and then it gets inside the cell more easily. Um, that's kind of the collection of, of mutations. The last one is D950N. Dawn, maybe? Call it Dawn, since there's kind of like a Can we call it Dunn, since it's the last one? Yeah, let's definitely. That's so much better than mine. Okay, Dunn um, is basically uh, actually something that is, uh, again, sort of helping, um, helping the virus fuse and enter our cells. So it seems to be helping that happen more effectively than the original novel coronavirus. So... Each one of these by themselves, not a huge problem. It's that collection that makes it Delta so much more contagious. Uh, we're shedding more virus. It, we need less virus um, in order for us to get infected. Um, and basically what's that that's doing, that collection of mutations, even though there's some good news that, you know, vaccination as well as previous natural infection can offer pretty good immunity against Delta, Again, we're going to get we're going to talk about that as well. Um, it's infectability, transmissibility, contagiousness. Those are all sort of different ways of of thinking about the same thing. Uh, is much much higher. So previously on the show, we talked about the R naught number. Uh, it's called the reproductive number. It's basically a measure of, on average, how many people are infected by each person. So take one person who's infected, they walk around their daily life, how many people on average are they going to give the virus to? So uh, when the pandemic began, the R-naught of the original novel coronavirus, um, also we can also call that the wild type 
coronavirus um, was estimated to be somewhere between two to three people. The R naught of the Delta variant is six, or you know, right now it's estimated to be six. More more data will solidify that. That makes the Delta variant similar in contagiousness to chickenpox, higher than any other variant of concern, higher than the other coronaviruses we've seen, SARS, MERS, and the four coronaviruses that cause common colds, higher than influenza, higher than other cold viruses, higher than polio, Ebola, and Spanish flu. It's interesting for me to see all of these um, mutations in one variant because I don't know that I necessarily even understood the difference between those words until I see it all laid out like this. And I also understand now why this in particular is going around. I think what is, um, you know, my curiosity peaks from the perspective of, um, what can we expect from this increased transmission? We're already seeing increases in numbers, changes in regulation, or not necessarily regulation, but um, recommendations or, you know, different sort of responses that we need to take to avoid going completely backwards, but also respecting that we're now in a different dynamic than we were a few months ago, which is different than we were, you know, before the vaccines and blah, 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 right? It's, it's this like swirling pot of change. And that's what happens. We talked a lot about herd immunity previously on the shows, when we don't have herd immunity, and we give the virus an opportunity to mutate. Um, I don't know that I have a question in there. Um, so much as I'm just... <laughs> I, like probably most listeners, um, have a lot like swirling in my head. And I know that um, you have all of the answers. So I'm just going to let you dive in. Yeah. So, I mean, the in addition to Delta being more contagious, um, there's, some, there's some ways that it behaves differently compared to the sort of original coronavirus as well as the alpha variant, which has been the one that's been dominant. Um, up until in in North America, anyways, up until the Delta variant got here and sort of blew Alpha out of the water. So some other things that are really different about Delta, um, its symptoms are a little bit different. So um, Delta can start out more like a head cold. So um, runny nose, sore throat, headache, and fever are the more common initial symptoms, and then the cough and the loss of smell may or may not occur with Delta um, and may come later. So some people are definitely getting lung symptoms right away. That's one of the things we have seen with COVID-19 the whole time is that there's, you know, basically almost every symptom is, can be caused by COVID-19. And then each person will have it sort of their own unique collection of those with certain things like fever and cough, and then the loss of smell and or taste kind of being more common. But with Delta, it, it can, a lot of people are feeling like, oh, I've got a head cold or, oh, I've got allergies. And because of that, um, we're so used to living with 
allergies and head colds, and we don't quarantine for 14 days when that happens, typically. Um, And so there's more opportunity for um, sort of just unknowingly spreading the Delta variant because it can feel so much like something more familiar um, and not, not, you know, hit the little spidey sense of, oh, my coffee tastes like gasoline, something's really wrong, right? So that loss of taste was so, um, and smell was was so, um, such a hallmark of the original COVID-19. For that to be delayed or maybe not even happen with Delta means that people aren't necessarily changing their own behavior when they're sick the way that they would have if they'd been infected with a different variant or the original. Uh, Another thing that's happening is the incubation period for Delta is shorter. So it's four days instead of six. Um, So also, we're contagious sooner after infection, um, still contagious before symptoms start. And that kind of also changes the the headspace of of just, you know, if if we can think back where we might have been exposed and we were looking back six days, maybe we're not going to identify the exposure event as effectively. So these are important things for us to know just so that we can respond with behavioral changes if if necessary correctly, right? Instead of misidentify Delta variant and continue on with normal lives. Um, also Delta is contagious for longer, and this is not something that I have seen um, very well um, communicated. So the average duration of being contagious with Delta is 18 days, but it was 13 for the original virus. And that is going to have some implications to um, like quarantine and isolation after a positive test. Um, I I mean, that's, that's what that data does imply. So, um, you know, wait to see if, if those types of guidelines change right now. Um, but that all of those things together make Delta um, just just so much more contagious, which is why we're seeing an even steeper slope in the the spike of new cases than we did last fall, and why um, areas of the United States with lower vaccination rates are um, now seeing the highest new cases per day than they've seen the entire pandemic and the highest number of hospitalizations that they've seen the entire pandemic. It's interesting to me to kind of look at these differences and see how um, it's our culture would have allowed it to spread as well, right? It's not just the virus itself, but given that so many people were vaccinated and um, walking around without masks and it's mimicking something that, as you said, we're used to, whether it's allergies or head colds and just kind of like the American culture, at least, is to push through and keep working, right? Like, Mm -hmm. don't take time to stop and heal or avoid people. And how it's taking advantage of that and able to multiply. And then, especially in areas where you are vaccinated, I know one of the studies that, you know, I was hearing about, we almost went to Provincetown for um, Family Pride Week at the end of last month. And we decided a long time ago that it, it wasn't it wasn't the right time for us to go that we could go next year. It's not a big deal. And Matt and I were watching 
the events from that area unfold and how the virus spread in that area. Um, and it, it really reminds me of kind of what you're talking about, right? It took advantage of the fact that most of those people were vaccinated. Um, they were outside. So the kids weren't wearing masks, all of these things that we've learned about the original coronavirus. And it, it really did like from an evolutionary perspective, take advantage of all those things and find a way to break through. Um, And that's both terrifying and, as you said, fascinating from a scientific perspective, but not humanitarian. Um, So I wonder if um, from an epidemiology perspective, there are... um, implications to that you know and I, like I can yeah. see how this is and, and we know that it's kind of a perfect storm so to speak just because we're seeing it play out at how effective the virus is at breaking through um it's also heartbreaking to hear how it is affecting countries as you mentioned I mean we watched the um what unfolded in India months ago with such heartbreak and to now see that it's you know it, then it went to the UK I think and and now it's hitting the US. I don't know where else it's been. I just know it's that in I was in 132 countries. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I mean it's uh, most of the world. Uh, yeah. And uh, okay, I'm going to let you keep talking about. It. I just it's <laughs> fascinating to me to hear kind of the science and the more information about this. I mean, I've heard it has a higher viral load. Uh, but I hearing you say it's a thousand times more of a viral load and it's more contagious than all those other things that you talked about. And coming at the time that it hit the U.S. when it did, when we had the particular restrictions lifted that we did and all those kinds of things like, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> like it's just like, yeah. oh, gosh, no. OK, um, m- moving on. So there is a there's a little bit more bad news to communicate before we get to some good news um, in terms of the epidemiology. I, I think it's helpful to sort of emphasize that, um, you know, one of the things that's been really challenging through the COVID-19 pandemic is the necessity to make policy decisions, public health decisions based on emerging science. So based on a scientific picture that's still being filled in, right? Studies are still being peer reviewed. So sometimes the studies being quoted are still preprint, right? They still still haven't actually gone through the whole peer review process, which is so essential for for science. I mean, it, it is the accountability process in science. Um, and so I think, you know, it's a, it's a situation where decisions are having to be made based on preliminary data that in normal times that would never happen. In normal times you would wait until the, you know, there were multiple studies and you had a mechanism and you had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in some kind of epidemiology study. And then you would have like really solid data, the full picture in order to make a decision based off of it. And so one of the things that I really want to communicate, especially as we transition into some of the bad news, is that, uh, or some more of the bad news, I guess, um, is that, you know, one of the things that makes this entire situation so challenging is how dynamic it is, right? That really this virus is changing faster than science can keep up and our need to be adaptable to changing our response to this virus um, 
has not been as flexible um, as as it needs to be. And it's one of the reasons why it was so important to cover the Delta variant on this show, because, um, you know, there's a lot of news outlets covering uh, science where science journalists aren't, the, the, it's, it's so big, right? It's such a big topic that it's not all being covered by science journalists, um, which means that sometimes things can be misinterpreted um, or um, a, a sort of like, a equals B equals C type of conclusion, right? So that sort of um, inference that um, I think it's really important to kind of just lay out where the data is. And I really want to emphasize, again, there's there's dozens and dozens of scientific studies um, that I'm referencing here that'll all be in our show notes. But I think it's really helpful to sort of emphasize that, you know, anytime I say a number, these things are the most subject to change because quantifying in biology is something that takes a ton of data to be able to do. I know it's been a challenging conversations with my husband as we talk about what we're going to do as a family in response, because he's an astrophysicist. So he just wants the number. He just wants to know what's the probability of, of this thing happening. Like he just, he wants that quantified and biology, especially when it's so fast, so, so new, doesn't give numbers. It will give ballparks maybe if you're lucky, um, but a number is something that you need so much more data to be able to really nail down. And that's not where we're at yet in terms of our understanding of Delta. Um, so we are going to say some numbers, but please know that they are, you know, generally from one paper, maybe two papers. Um, and so think of them as ballparks, not as, not as, uh, this isn't, this isn't physics, unfortunately, it's definitely, definitely biology. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so as we move on to kind of the specifics about what one might expect, um, one of the things that I read, and I'm curious if you're going to kind of cover this, is that um, 80% of those who get the Delta variant and have a vaccine are symptomatic. I think that's that's a different number than the originals. Obviously, until you're symptomatic, that's a problem. But I know one of the things that we talked a lot about with the breakthrough cases on earlier shows is that you could be asymptomatic and not know that you were carrying it. And that's why masking, even if you're vaccinated, is important. In this case, you know, we're still going to do that because we don't know until we have symptoms and, you know, all that stuff. But um, do you, is that kind of a valid number? Because the source that I saw was it was like a news article and not a scientific reference. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm wondering. Yeah. Um, no, it's not a valid number. Um. <laughs> womp, womp. See, this is why. And like, I immediately was like, okay, this is not a, there's not a reference here. There's not, you know what I mean? And yeah. this is, I'm learning as the non-science um, person. I mean, again, you know, all of the numbers are, 
the things that are sort of most subject to clarity as more data comes in, right? It's not that they're changing. It's that we just understand what the number is better and that biology is like that because in biology, um, it's uh, if you, uh, you know, have A plus B, it, it might equal C, but it might equal D, <laughs> might equal A and a half. Um, you know, biology, there's this um, concept called a Gaussian curve where there's a, a peak, right? There's an average, but then there's variability. And there's variability because we're not genetically identical. And so because we're not genetically identical, we don't have identical diets, we don't have identical lifestyles, um, we don't have identical health histories. You can sort of look, you can take two people who look very similar in terms of their risk for, say, severe disease on paper, and one person might get mild disease and the other person might you know, be in the ICU. And it, there's a, there's an amount of stochasticity here that makes it really impossible to make really firm predictions. And that's sort of the nature of biology. It's sort of the nature of infectious disease. And it's also, you know, in in part, it reflects how complex um, biological systems are, how complex the human body is, how complex viruses are, um, and the complex interaction between those things. Um, But also, there's a lot more science that just needs to be done to expand human knowledge so that we can understand better all of the variables that go into that equation. Right now, we clearly don't because um, there's so many surprises in terms of, you know, who might end up with moderate or severe disease, right? We're seeing more and more news stories of younger people ending up very, very sick with the Delta variant. And that doesn't seem to be related to the Delta variant itself, that it's changing necessarily the risk between age groups. It seems to have, it seems to be more related to younger people have a lower um, vaccination rate. Um, But overall, I think it is helpful to know that we do have some, again, preliminary emerging data showing that the Delta variant is more risky than uh, either alpha variant or the wild type. So there was some data out of uh, Scotland showing that the um, delta rate, the rate of hospitalization was not quite double, 85% higher um, compared to alpha. Um, And that was after adjusting for all of the different factors that these types of statistical analyses are adjusted for. Um, There's some data out of Singapore that when they kind of look at um, a bad outcome, so that's pooled together, that's uh, requiring oxygen in the hospital, ICU admission, or death. I mean, death would obviously be the worst outcome out of all of those things, that um, the Delta variant was nearly five times higher than um, the original. Um, So um, that was, you know, that's across the board. So they're not necessarily seeing a higher risk in young young people, but rather a higher risk across the board, meeting younger people being less likely to be vaccinated. Um, They also had an increased, an 88% increased risk for pneumonia, which would be considered severe disease. Um, And then there's data out of Canada um, showing 120% increased risk for hospitalization a nearly 300% increased risk for ICU admission and 137% increased risk for death. Again, those are really precise numbers. Um, don't think of the, don't think of it as exact, exactly 137, right? Think of it as, well, that's a little bit over double. 
So um, that that's more, you know, think of it in terms of the ballpark. So right now, right, that's the kind of data that we have um, that all together show us that uh, vaccination is really important. And that's where we. All right. I'm going to carry our enthusiasm of bone broth powder <laughs> to our enthusiasm of great news with vaccines. Um, and I say, <laughs> I know it's a terrible bridge, but I, um, I say this also, I just want to remind people that if you've chosen not to get the vaccine, we are not here to tell you what choice to make. Um, we have done a lot of shows to empower you with the information to make the choice that is best for you. Um, I will say that I have a huge sigh of relief this morning when I heard on the news that we have reached the goal that we set for ourselves for July 4th. And that means that more people are going to get the vaccine because of Delta and because they want to help the population as a whole. And um, that means that I'm going to cross my fingers, knock on wood and do everything. I hope we're not continuing to have this conversation for years about variants if we can get to herd immunity. If we have 70% of adults vaccinated, now that's only one and we need two. Um, but I, two shots if you're not getting the one shot. Um, but I, I am, I'm hopeful also that we're in the fall able to vaccinate children um, because as you mentioned, Sarah, your kids are already back in school. Mine will be in school in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And that has me very nervous. But the thing that gives me comfort is knowing that the vaccine is showing efficacy against um, complexity and elevation of symptoms, right? And so yeah. I'm hoping you can kind of walk into that and give people a little like, okay, here's the, here's the positive, here's the good news in all of this. But I, I say that with hesitancy because if we don't get to herd immunity, this we're, we could be talking about a vaccine that mutates and changes and outsmarts the vaccine like Gamma did, um, or I don't even want, I don't want to go there. We're talking about positive news now. <laughs> well, yes, I, we're definitely talking about good news, but I think um, I think it's helpful still to frame this in, you know, one of the things we've talked about on our um, six different COVID-19 vaccine episodes is this idea of sort of being in a race um, to vaccinate enough people to reach herd immunity, knowing that herd immunity is kind of a fuzzy number. So it's somewhere between 70 and 90 percent. And we don't really know until we get there. Um, and racing against the virus mutating to a point where it can evade that protection. And, you know, the head of the World Health Organization last week basically said, like, we're only a couple of mutations away from that horrible back to square one level. That is not where Delta is. Delta is not back to square one, um, which is great news for us. Like, that is really important to emphasize. And also, I think it's helpful to say that some scientists don't believe that, um, that we could get a virus that is both as transmissible and sort of fit as Delta, Delta and evades our immune responses because of that sort of tug of war against the mutations. So there is also some disagreement in terms of the trajectory of the pandemic, again, because um, biology is complex 
And um, it's really challenging to, especially in biology form, really solid conclusions based on emerging science, right? The, the scientific studies are, um, you know, they're still being performed. We're adding to our knowledge every single day, but right now our knowledge is incomplete and imperfect. And so what we can talk about is what we know and how to use what we know to make decisions and then understand that because science is a process, we might have to adapt to new information um, as, as it comes in. So with Delta, I think that the most important good news is this is not a back to square one virus. Yes, it's more transmissible. Yes, it might increase risk of severe disease and death in unvaccinated people. But the really good news is that the vaccines are very effective against Delta. So studies that have looked at how well the antibodies we make in response to these studies are mostly done in the mRNA vaccines, but some of them have been done also in the adenovirus vector vaccines um, and have compared how well those antibodies neutralize different variants. Delta is actually an improvement compared to, for example, beta, the B1351 variant first identified in South Africa, or gamma, the P1 variant first identified in Brazil, um, it's not it's not quite as easily neutralized as the alpha variant, but it's actually it's it's actually been sort of um, if the virus had mutated continuing down the the beta and gamma trees, um, we would be probably in a more challenging situation in terms of having to go back to shutdowns and things. That is not where Delta is putting us. And not only does that work in a test tube, but real world data also is showing that the vaccines are doing their job. So there was a UK study that showed that um, this was done in the Pfizer mRNA vaccines showed 88% efficacy against Delta after two doses. One of the things that's different about Delta compared to wild type is the efficacy after one dose of an mRNA vaccine. So it used to be that the mRNA vaccines were about 70% protective after the first dose against the original novel coronavirus. Against variants, it's down to like 30%. So that's, again another really important reason, which we've talked about on the show before, to make sure to get both of those doses. So um, that was really fantastic news. Um, the same study looked at the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is an adenovirus vector, uh, similar um, in in sort of platform to the Johnson & Johnson, but is a two-dose vaccine. And that one was 75% from, from alpha, which dropped down to 67% efficacy. That's against a symptomatic infection. Um, all in all, when you look at the data right now, we're seeing that vaccines basically reduce the risk of testing positive by about threefold, reduce the risk of a symptomatic COVID-19 infection about eightfold, and about a 25-fold reduction in hospitalization and death. And that's actually the most important piece of data here. It's not actually the 88%. It's the 96% protection against uh, death. Um, so it's, it's not, or from hospitalization. So those are, the, those are the really important numbers. That is the real protection. And I think it's helpful to understand that um, you know, COVID-19 is not like a lot of the infections that we have sort of come to live with. So we have come to sort of accept 
stomach flus, influenza A even, right? The, the more harsher influenza, a whole variety of different types of, of colds as, you know, yeah, it's, it's cold and flu season. I'm just going to be sick three times this year. We've kind of, we've got all these sort of mild infections that have really, really low morbidity and mortality rates. And we just, you know, know that when our kids go to school, they're going to bring something home and it'll go through the family and we just kind of live through it. We go to work anyways, right? We take all the over-the-counter medications in order to, you know, get through the symptoms of the work day. We sort of have all these infectious diseases that we live with. COVID-19, a mild case of COVID-19 can be anywhere from, again, that head cold feels like allergies, really hard to pinpoint, all the way to anything short of pneumonia. And so uh, a mild to moderate case, even though that's the clinical like medical definition might feel really severe. So there are people who are absolutely knocked flat by COVID-19, even with breakthrough cases. And so it's sort of helpful to, to remember that one of the reasons why we want to get through this pandemic, and we don't want to be in a place where we just live with COVID-19, is because it is a much more serious infection than anything we're used to. It's much more disruptive to our lives, even, even if you don't think about Things like risk of long COVID, long-term damage to the vascular system, or you know the increased risk of diabetes afterwards, like all of those things aside, it is a much more disruptive infection for a lot of people than the things that we typically just live with. And so keeping in mind, the most important data here is that the vaccines are um, incredibly effective against hospitalization and death, even with the Delta variant. Um, but those mild cases can still feel like a really big deal. Um, so just understanding that caveat. Um, but we're also even seeing this again, sort of like in this current um, fourth wave, I guess, or however we're going to call this current increase in COVID-19 COVID cases, um, we're seeing a average of uh, the people who are hospitalized, 97% of them are unvaccinated. So 3% of the people who are hospitalized for COVID-19 right now are um, fully vaccinated people. And 99.5% of the COVID-19 deaths that are occurring in the USA right now are unvaccinated. And that just reflects how protective the vaccines are. It's helpful to also understand that there's a little bit of geographical variation in terms of those rates. So there is a range. So for example, the range of new cases that are um, fully vaccinated versus not vaccinated in Oklahoma, it's 92, a little over 92% that are unvaccinated, whereas in Connecticut, it's 99.9% um, vaccinated or unvaccinated rather. So um, understanding that, you know, on average, 97% of, of um, the cases that are requiring hospitalization of COVID-19 right now are unvaccinated people. There is some variability, again, sort of regionally, which may reflect the demographics. It may reflect um, the vaccination status. So also it's totally understandable and expected just in terms of statistics that the higher the vaccination uptake rate is, so the more people who are vaccinated in that population, when you have this high case rate and this high chance of running into COVID-19 when you're out and about in your daily life, 
that the percent of people that you see testing positive or having a, a, a breakthrough infection that requires treatment in the hospital, for example, will increase. And it reflects just the overwhelmingly high percentage of people in the population. So also, it could be that we see the number of breakthrough infections in the hospital increase. And that's not necessarily a bad or scary thing that can reflect this higher rate of vaccination that's happening right now. So that is, it's just a a, a law of numbers type effect. Um, and we're actually seeing that in other countries where the vaccine rates are higher. So in England, nearly 90% of the adult population has had at least one dose and over 70% of the adults in England have had both doses of their vaccine. And right now they're seeing like 60% um, are un of their hospitalized people with Delta variant are unvaccinated. 23% are fully vaccinated and the rest in the middle have only had one of their shots. So, you know, 20% fully vaccinated versus, you know, here we're seeing 3% fully vaccinated. That is the effect of a higher vaccination rate. Um, so you're just seeing the progression of the variant through the population and you just have a higher opportunity for breakthrough infections that are going to be really serious. Is it still less than 1%? Do you know um, death rate of those who are vaccinated? Is that what I'm understanding, right? Like yes. over 99% of the people who currently are dying from this disease were unvaccinated. And that like saying that out loud, just it breaks my heart. I've read so many stories of like doctors talking about people asking if they could have the vaccine before they get the ventilator and the doctors having yeah. to tell them it's too late. And I'm just like, my heart aches. And I know that that statistic and that humanitarian factor is so difficult. And I just, I, I hope that that's part of the reason why people are now more motivated to, to go get the vaccine. I'm wondering if that number, which you specified for the U.S. is the same you talked a little bit different numbers in yeah. England. Are no, we it's, it's, consistency? It's very similar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing here is, um, is that it's even if you end up in the hospital with a breakthrough infection with the Delta variant, you still have a much higher chance of leaving that hospital alive and intact and all your fingers and toes still attached. That's never been a COVID-19 symptom. I don't know why I said that. Um, but yeah, you see, so it's the same as in England. COVID that toes is still totally a symptom, but you're just not going yeah, to lose Yeah, but your toes don't fall off, though. They just oh, turn a weird color. Yeah. This is um, when it gets awkward because we're talking about, like, really uncomfortable things. Um, I just, yeah. you know, it's it's so hard for me because there are people, understandably, who legitimately are at a risk who, in talking to a medical professional and becoming educated, decide it's not right for them. And I'm just... I'm heartbroken that because of misinformation and different kinds of things or confusion or lack of ability to get the vaccine, which is less likely now than when we recorded, you know, the earlier shows. But for all of those reasons that we have people dying when they don't have to, like, it's just, yeah. that's the thing that, you know, really gets me is like, I think about all the people who died from before a vaccine was available and what, you know, what, what they wouldn't give to tell everybody today, 
it is preventable now. You don't, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to be in that situation. It's just hard. And I don't mean to be a commercial for it, but just, it breaks my heart because I know that most of those people, it could have been prevented. And that's really, really uh, tough to swallow. Well, and that's exactly the challenge because we even see a really impressive protective effect of the vaccine in states where the vaccination rate is higher. But that also the flip side of that coin is that we're seeing increased infection, just higher numbers, higher hospitalizations, higher deaths in states that have lower levels of vaccinated people who live in them. And there's been analysis that have sort of like looked at states that have more than 50% of their citizens vaccinated versus states that have less. And generally across the board, it's about three times higher levels of new infections every day, of new um, hospitalizations every day, and almost three times of daily deaths. And it's just that 50% threshold, which, you know, the average now in America is over 50% for fully vaccinated adults. Um, If we can get the whole country to be above that threshold, it's still not herd immunity, but we are going to see that reflected in the numbers. Hey listeners, you might know me as the bone broth lady. And way back in episode 430, we covered all the science on why I'm obsessed and why collagen in particular is amazing for our health. But to summarize, about 30% of all of the proteins in our body are collagen because it's our main structural protein. So without it, maybe we'd be jellyfish? Well, kinda. Collagen is essential for bone, cartilage, ligaments, tendons, teeth, connective tissues, skin, muscles, blood vessels, even the corneas in our eyes. Goodness. Well, the thing I learned in that episode was that our collagen can decrease and degrade from aging, chronic inflammation, chronic stress. I don't know anybody with those things. Uh, Nutritional (laughs) deficiencies, UV radiation, lots of things. But the good news is that studies show that supplementing with just 10 to 20 grams of collagen every day can combat all those effects improving skin health, invisible signs of aging, speeding up wound healing, improving joint health, increasing bone mineral density, and even increasing muscle mass. I know I've seen an improvement in some of those things from taking it myself. And of course, we're super picky about what collagen supplement we use because most are made with an industrial process that often uses chemicals or harsh solvents, which is not disclosed on the label. And is one of the reasons that we use and love Paleo Valley. They have 100% grass-fed bone broth protein. Wait, before you jump in, Sarah, I want to say, I was a little hesitant about that in episode 430, but I've been using it since, and I really do love it. I genuinely do. I knew you would. Uh, It's definitely my favorite. I use it every single day. I love it because it's made from 100% grass-fed and finished beef bones that are free from pesticides and antibiotics, that are slow-simmered in filtered water and nothing else, and then gently powdered, and it is so versatile. I do love that they third-party test to guarantee that you're getting clean, healthy product with no contaminants. It also has almost no flavor. It dissolves easily. I put a big scoop into my coffee every morning. I prefer it 
to blend it into smoothies, um, or if I'm adding it to coffee, I might mix it with some other things as well. Um, you can also put it in recipes, things like sauces, mix it with hot water um, and some salt, and maybe just have a mug of collagen-rich, almost tastes like bone broth to sip before bed as well. Our listeners can head to paleovalley.com and enter the code THEWHOLEVIEW at checkout to receive 15% off your order. I also really love Paleo Valley's other fantastic products like their grass-fed organ complex, which includes liver and other organ meats, and their food-based essential C complex, which we've also talked on the show about. I take both every single day. I do too. Paleo Valley is awesome. I know we went through this in earlier shows and I've mentioned a couple of times, but maybe we could be specific about breakthrough infections with Delta. Um, yeah. and, just, and just like a reminder for people, that is the word that means you've been vaccinated and then you get the infection just to simplify it. Yeah. Yes. So um, it's important to understand that it's the data on breakthrough infections that is behind the recent change in mask guidance from the CDC. So um, a couple of things. So first of all, we know that the rate of breakthrough infections with Delta is higher than other variants. And that is just, you know, it's a reflection not of how um, Delta evades the immune system, but rather all of those other competitive advantages that Delta has to infection, to um, reproducing itself, that higher viral load, those are all of the things that are leading to a higher level of breakthrough cases, even though the vaccines are still absolutely doing their job, protecting against hospitalization and death at an incredibly high efficacy. But no vaccine, no medication is perfect. And so there are times where people are still getting infected, even though they're fully vaccinated. And right now, again, the data is emerging. It seems to be as high as about a 36% breakthrough infection rate. Again, we're going to know more about this uh, in the coming weeks and months as there's just more data. Um, but that's sort of where, where we're looking at is sort of some something like a third of the... Um, basically of the a potential symptomatic infections are not being protected by the vaccines, even though the vaccines are protecting against the more severe disease in that person who's getting infected. So the vaccines are keeping that person out of the hospital, keeping them from di dying from COVID-19, but they still might not feel very well for a week or two or even three. And um, the new data that makes these breakthrough infections different because there were breakthrough infections even with the alpha variant, even with the wild type. I mean, that's been sort of well known to happen. We're seeing more of them. Um, but also something really important has changed with the Delta variant, and that is how the vaccines are protecting against possible transmission. So with the alpha variant, um, the reason why the CDC said, you know, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask in most cases, was there was data showing that the viral load in somebody who um, had a breakthrough infection was so low, there was a very low risk of transmitting. Not zero, but very low risk of transmitting. 
right now, especially the data that um, you know came out of Provincetown, but also some other studies that have been done in other places, um, it looks like the viral load in somebody with a breakthrough infection is not that different from somebody who's unvaccinated. That unvaccinated person is not protected against severe disease, right? They have a, as we talked about, probably at least double higher risk of severe disease and of death from the Delta variant compared to if they caught a different variant of COVID. Um, but the the there's a, now a big question about whether or not a breakthrough infection is contagious. And there's more data showing that it might be. So it's important here to emphasize that viral load is not the same thing as transmissibility. That's been conflated in a lot of media stories about the COVID-19 Delta variant, because um, it's 100% possible that most of that virus is not viable. It's all been neutralized by the immune system. In that case, it's just dead virus you're shedding, not, not live virus. Um, but there is more data, um, you know, some data out of Israel, some data out of England and Finland that are showing that breakthrough infections um, seem to have a higher likelihood of being contagious with the Delta variant than other variants. So out of Israel, they basically have showed that the, the range of protection, they kind of did this study that sort of covered when alpha was dominant there into where delta was dominant. And they don't have it sort of broken down by exact time range, but they showed that the what they looked at was if somebody in the house had a confirmed infection, what the likelihood was of other members of that household getting infected, and basically showed a drop from about 80% protection against infections down to about 40% over that time frame of, of Delta emerging in Israel. They weren't able to draw a direct line to Delta with that study, but it's, it's, it's very likely that that is the reason behind that effect. Um, data in England, sort of same type of looking at if you live with somebody who's infected, what your chances are of getting infected are, basically showed that... Um, the, the Delta variant, um, it, now that it's dominant, the vaccines reduce the chance of you transmitting the virus by about, four, again, sort of 40 to 50%. And then data out of Finland has sort of shown the same thing, 43% lower chance of getting infected. That's not, it shows the vaccines are protecting at least somewhat against transmissibility with a breakthrough infection, but those numbers aren't good enough to be able to um, only rely on the vaccine. This is why adding that second layer of protection, adding masks um, becomes really, really important because we, we want to reduce infections so that this virus can't mutate anymore. That is the whole goal. We want to save lives. That's going to be really important. Um, and so it's this indication that breakthrough infections while maybe not as transmissible as in unvaccinated people getting infected, that they still have a, you know, maybe something like 40 to 60% um, transmissibility rate. That's still, that's still a problem with when you have an R naught of six. 
at the risk of getting you onto a soapbox. So just mm-hmm. take a deep breath before I ask this question. Um, a couple of the things that I have been asked or I have seen online that I'm going to call a myth and you are going to call misinformation. <laughs> but, um, genuinely, this is something that concerns people is that there are those out there saying that all of these statistics and all of these numbers that we've just gone through um, are skewed because a hospitals either aren't testing people who say that they've been vaccinated, i.e. that's why the numbers are what they are, or B, um, if you're sick, they're assuming that you didn't get the vaccine. And that's why it's showing that, you know, there's such a low death rate among the vaccinated. Can you please answer if this is a myth or not? That's, that's, not, that's not how medical charts work. Um, it's actually really important and the CDC has guidance across the entire country for tracking breakthrough infections. They are specifically tracking hospitalizations and deaths from breakthrough infections. That's a high priority to understand because it's really actionable information as new variants emerge. Um, Non-symptomatic breakthrough infections are definitely getting missed because if you feel fine, you're not going to just go get your brain impaled by a nasal swab for fun. That is not anyone's idea of a groovy Friday night. So that's not what people are doing. So definitely asymptomatic breakthrough infections are not being captured right now. Um, you can look at like these types of places, you know, uh, sports teams and whatever, where they're doing uh, weekly testing and you can kind of get a sense of breakthrough infections that are asymptomatic through those types of, you know, small groups where there is more surveillance testing. But definitely, yeah, we're not capturing asymptomatic cases. A lot of the um, breakthrough infections that have been caught, for example, after the Provincetown outbreak, where like 75% of the cases were in vaccinated people, I think there were only something like four hospitalizations, like, and no deaths. Like it was still, the vaccines were doing their job. A lot of those people found out they had COVID because it is standard practice now, if you are going into uh, get any kind of even a minor procedure done that you get tested for COVID ahead of time. So it was a lot of those cases were detected by, you know, people going into the doctor for something else and then getting tested as part of that procedure. So um, it's, yeah, it's just, there's that grain of truth that yes, we are definitely not capturing asymptomatic breakthrough infections because we're not doing broad population uh, surveillance testing in uh, the United States of America, but also they they are definitely, definitely checking on vaccination status in the hospitals because that is an important data point that is a high priority to track. Well, and I haven't been there myself and I'm not a doctor working in a hospital, so I can't speak to it, but I do follow on social media people who are um, doing these roles to stay informed about what's like actually happening out there. And one of the things that I know they've mentioned is this like misinformation that's being spread that if someone comes in who is sick, who is sick, but says they were vaccinated, that they wouldn't do a test to see if it really was COVID and they would treat it like something else. Why would that make any sense at all? Literally a doctor's job is to know what you have so they can properly treat it. Like the first thing they're going to do is give you a COVID test, whether you've been vaccinated or not. And then saying, 
if you are sick, they're going to assume that you didn't get a vaccine. Why wouldn't they just ask you? Like, it, I, it's definitely part of the intake process. Have you been vaccinated or not? So it's interesting to me that in in the face of um, facts and information and science, one of the things that we've said, you know, in previous shows is like, science is true, whether you believe it or not. Facts are true, whether it's the same opinion you have or not, right? Like we're not, I'm not telling someone what to do. I'm presenting information and facts. And sometimes that's hard to hear, or it sounds like an opinion or sounds like something you don't want to hear because it, it might not jive with what you want or your personal beliefs or whatever it may be having nothing to do with COVID, right? Like this applies to life in general. But I think what's interesting is, you know, we have these really solid numbers about less than 1% of people who've been vaccinated are the ones who are dying from this. And the answer from the people who have been talking about this misinformation the reasons to avoid vaccination that aren't the real ones that a doctor might give someone, right? Again, medical professionals, not whoever it is that you're following on social media or whatever. The answer that they're giving is, well, the hospitals are to blame. The hospitals aren't calculating this correct, which is the same argument that was made months and months ago when they were claiming that the death certificates were skewing the results and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you can't prove misinformation except when you have actual facts and data and so they try to discredit the facts and, and data and yeah. um that's that's frustrating when you're trying to educate people and inform people to be empowered with information to make their own decisions when the information is discredited then it really confuses people about well you know, what is the truth? And and in paralyzation and confusion, one doesn't act, right? That is a like a biological yeah. feature is like, well, I'm confused. I don't know. You know, th- this person says this thing, this person says this thing. And so the answer is to do nothing. Well, in this case, not doing something has a much worse potential for outcome. And it's just, it's really hard for me to hear that this information is going around. And I'm just like, what? what? Like this, this is, this, okay. All right. Let's, I just want to put it out there. Um, that that is not actually what's happening and that it's, it is intentionally created to create confusion and that's frustrating. Yeah. Well, I think also it's, there's, there's a sort of a well-known phenomenon that conspiracy theories sort of spread through fear and negative emotions, right? So they, they really are, um, emotionally manipulative and, Um, and that's one of the ways they can really like take hold and, and spread because they're triggering an emotional response that kind of overwhelms the logical brain. That's going to slow think through the process and think about fact checking. Right. So we're responding to that, whatever that is, uh, emotionally before, (laughs) before the rest of our brain kicks into gear. And I think that one of the things that's made misinformation so easy to spread during a global pandemic is that the real information is also triggering negative emotions, right? So um, whether you're engaging with real information or engaging with misinformation or even worse, disinformation, um, it's all worrisome, right? It's all, it all is hard. It's hard to hear. It's hard to... Um, it's hard to do risk analysis for our own selves when, um, 
when even the being able to translate numbers to a, well, now what, what do I do about this is a really challenging thing. There's a lot that goes into our own sort of risk, um, risk analysis anyways, like that's, you know, this personality, you know, features and things like that, that also would, would go into a risk analysis. And so I think it's, it's a, it's a really challenging time to sift through information online. Uh, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, but my top recommendation, um, is to look for sources, look for citations, right? So look, look for who is being credited for that information and take a breath, right? Take, take that moment to let your critical brain kick in and think through. And that, that, that's challenging. It takes practice. Um, you know, I think I have to credit my entire PhD training with being able to kick in the critical brain really fast and go, that can't be right. And then fact check. And sometimes, sometimes my critical brain goes, that can't, they can't dye the entire river in Chicago green for St. Patrick's day. That can't be right. Cause when I first saw that, I assumed it was a Photoshopped picture. And then sure enough, when I fact check, no, they, they, they super do that. That's kind of cool. Someday I'm going to go see it. But, um, I think it's really important to give your, give your fact checking critical brain a little bit of space, um, which sometimes means taking a break from social media, right? Social media can be very emotionally triggering, especially these days. Um, and so, you know, I hope we're seen as a trusted source for our listeners, but also that's why everything we talk about, not just in COVID shows, but every show is backed up by scientific evidence with references to the original papers so that you can go read that science for yourself. Absolutely. We wouldn't have it any other way. Okay. So that said, let's put that behind us. Um, I think one of the things that's obviously relative to me, so I'm going to ask the question is, um, how are we seeing people who have, I think it's being called long COVID now instead of long haulers, long haulers with COVID, whatever we're calling it. People like me. (laughs) Post-acute COVID syndrome, I think is the technical term. Oh my goodness. I know. I mean, honestly, it's affecting so many people in such a severe way. It doesn't surprise me that we're formally naming it and looking at ways to really help these people. I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Mine are relatively minor, but also I know what increased risk is down the road. And so I'm all for science doing some serious investigation into how to improve outcome. But in the meantime, what are we seeing from those people in terms of breakthrough infections and how Delta might affect? Yeah. So that has been the biggest piece of information that I have been waiting for, for the last several months, as I try to um, navigate every choice related to personal protection, right? Am I, am I going to wear a mask when I go here? Am I even going to go there? Right. Those types of decisions for the last few months. One of the big things that I have been uh, concerned about is whether or not the vaccines protect against long COVID if you get a breakthrough infection. And there's finally been a study out of Israel. It was in healthcare workers. So they have a very high risk of exposure to COVID-19 and they looked at uh, the breakthrough infection rate. Um, so they basically, you know, they had less than a 3% breakthrough, symptomatic breakthrough infection rate. Um, 
almost all the symptomatic cases were extremely mild. So about two thirds of them were, were mild. Um, and they um, did find that in that small percentage of breakthrough infections, there was a 19% um, chance of persistent symptoms at six weeks. So the other thing that's challenging with long COVID is sometimes it's defined as six weeks, sometimes eight weeks, sometimes 12 weeks. Um, so it can be defined differently. But in that six weeks range, that's where with unvaccinated, you would be ballpark 30% risk of, of still having symptoms at six weeks. Um, and so this was 19% of 3%. So it's a very, very small chance, but again, non-zero. So, so this for me was, um, it was definitely the type of information that helped to, to calm some anxieties. Um, but at the same time, it's not like the huge sigh of relief that I was hoping for. So um, it's overall good news, but it is important to know that there, there is a chance for a breakthrough infection to develop into long COVID. And um, I know our listeners are all about information. So there's, there's some more. And, and really, like all of this, um, the higher rate of symptomatic breakthrough infections, Delta being so much more contagious, um, is another reason why boosters are probably coming. So I would guess based on being completely a layperson and having zero insider information, six months to a year is probably the time frame. Um, I have seen that older and immunocompromised adults will be prioritized for booster shots. Um, so it'll sort of depend on where the data is, I think, how they decide to roll those out. Um, but there, there has been some information that uh, immunocompromised people in general have less protection when they get the the vaccines. So it's been studied in a couple of studies. There was one study in people with um, inflammatory bowel disease on immunosuppressive medication that showed that after this was done before the Delta variant, that they were only about 80% protected after an mRNA vaccine compared to, right, old data was 96% against the, the wild type. There was a, a study done in immunocompromised people. So that's sort of a broad categorization, including people who've had transplants or who are on immunosuppressants or have you know, chronic renal failure. Um, so those types of conditions that are synonymous with immunocompromised, that they had uh, about a 59% protection against hospitalization from COVID-19, um, but the control group had a 91% protection. So though that's why those those populations of, of people will be prioritized when boosters are ready. Um, also, all of the, the vaccine companies are testing booster shots now that will offer better coverage against the variants. So the mRNA strand, for example, will be likely slightly different than the original shot in order to increase antibody production in general, but also make sure that those antibodies bind better against the variants of concern. The other piece of information that's going into booster shot chit chat is that Pfizer has released some data. Again, this is preprint, so it hasn't been peer reviewed yet, but basically showing that their effectiveness looking at infections decreases over time after it sort of peaks around, um, two months and it starts to decrease. It's still very, very good six months out. 
it's still a very high level of protection. But in the face of Delta, where it's just so much more transmissible, if a booster would offer better protection, the, the studies have shown that with a third shot, that they're increasing neutralizing antibodies in um, in sort of younger, less than sort of 65 year olds, I believe the study was, by fivefold, and in older adults by 11 fold. So the boosters have a, a really high likelihood of dramatically increasing our protection. And after a third booster, we may have actually a more durable protection as well. But there's a whole question as we talk about boosters, about vaccine equity. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that because one of the reasons why we have Delta is not from uncontrolled cases in America, but uncontrolled cases somewhere else. So it was the the surge in India where they had a, a there was a fire in a factory that delayed their vaccine rollout. So there was a, a lot of things that went into that surge. Um, and that's, again, why we want to step away from stigmatizing names that blame the sort of country where that that variant emerged. But as long as there are places where the COVID-19 virus can spread through the populations in large numbers, there's going to be more opportunity for mutations. So this pandemic isn't over until it's over everywhere. And right now, uh, I know most of our listeners are in Western countries that have a very high vaccination rate. There has actually been over 4 billion doses of vaccine administered globally, but something like 11 million doses would have to be administered to, to reach sort of global herd immunity. And there's a big disparity between high-income countries and low-income countries. So even though almost 15% of the global population is fully vaccinated, in low-income countries, it's more like 1%. So there's a that big disparity. And that's another thing. Again, I'm glad I'm not a policymaker and I don't need to make these decisions. But as we're prioritizing where booster shots go, is it better to get everyone vaccinated in a in a country that doesn't have access to vaccines? Or is it better to fully protect uh, more vulnerable populations here? It's I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. So um, that's, again, I think something to just acknowledge. That's a really challenging policy decision that I'm glad I'm not responsible for making. Agreed. And I would say, you know, if like whatever we're going to do um, here in the States, one of the things that we can do that we know is effective, even if you're not able to be vaccinated or to get a booster or whatever the case may be, is to wear a mask. And, you know, before there was a vaccine, we were able to reduce the number of active cases by um, wearing proper mask at the appropriate times and socially distancing and washing our hands. So I know many of us, myself included, have really enjoyed um, being able to get away from uh, some of those stringent requirements um, and spending time with loved ones and all that kind of stuff. I want to encourage you to think about, okay, if, you know, grandma and I were to be in the same room together, um, are we both okay with the idea that we might get Delta? And what does that look like for her versus me or whatever. Um, and 
also if I'm going to go someplace indoors at all, actually before the CDC recommended it about a week beforehand, I told the kids, we're going to start wearing masks again when we go inside places. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, I know it's annoying and I don't want, you know, you don't want to deal with it. And, you know, you, you feel like you're vaccinated now and you don't, you feel like you shouldn't have to deal with it. And I use that should word intentionally. Um, It was a conversation that we had and I was just like, listen, if, if there's any chance at all that we could help somebody else or we could prevent ourselves from getting sick we're going to we're going to do that. And so we're just the new rule is no matter where you're going, if it's indoors, we're going to wear a mask. Um, and I know, Sarah, you've talked about kind of your stance on that earlier because you have a young one in your house who's not vaccinated. We yeah. were kind of at a place where we were willing to take that risk because my youngest one who isn't vaccinated is healthy and we've had it before and we felt like he had some protection because of that. And it was just like, OK, that was a decision we made. And then because of what has changed in the world, we decided to, to change that information and that, or to change that decision. And I think some people will skew and create conspiracies and misinformation about the fact that, you know, oh, see, all the science was wrong all along. No, absolutely not. The science was correct all along. And had we gotten herd immunity, we could have moved forward, but we didn't. And so now, just as we anticipated, we're facing mutations and we're going to have to go back to the thing that we know that works until we can get to a place where we can move on, hopefully from it. Um, I'm not going to be like Sarah and commit that this is our last show. Um, I I hope so. But, you know, it's just not where the future is looking right now, especially since we're in summertime and we're seeing an increase. That concerns me, right? Like what will the fall and the winter look like when we go back indoors? Because we know the effect that that had last year. Um, so I I am glad that there is positive news, but I also just want to say, you know, I feel responsible as a parent, you know, as myself to do what I can to try to reduce. And um, I... It, it, you know, I don't know. It is what it is. And it just could be honest. It sucks. It's it really sucks. Um, but we are where we where we are. So um, maybe we are going to talk more about our own kind of personal decisions and experiences on our Patreon. Is that is yeah. that where we're going with this? A hundred percent. Um, I think there's, there's a lot to sort of share about how we've changed things personally in our own lives in the last couple of weeks. I think as we wrap up, um, right now, this episode, I think it's really helpful. You've very emphasized the, the need for, for universal masking. I think that was the biggest new change related to brand new data that happened last week. Um, the data really shows that we can still spread it if we have a breakthrough infection and our chances are breakthrough infection with symptoms are higher with Delta than with other variants. So that together means that, you know, it's about protecting ourselves, but also protecting our communities is to go back to masking, especially indoors, but also outdoor crowded areas. But also this is a, a, a opportunity for our listeners who have not yet gotten vaccinated to rethink that decision. Maybe if you haven't had a chance to talk to your doctor about it yet, talk to your doctor because the vaccines are highly effective against Delta and um, really are are not just our best pathway out of this global pandemic, but also our best immediate tool to suppress the, the Delta variant 
um, and hopefully get back to very, very low case numbers where we were uh, earlier, late spring and early summer. I wanted to break it down for you and also um, give you some some action to feel either comforted or um, to feel like, okay, you know what your, what your next steps are. And so I just thank you for making it through. Thank you for caring um, about others and, and wanting to make those changes so that we can all um, be humanitarians to one another. And thank you, Sarah, for pulling it all together. If you want to hear more, we would love for you to join us over on Patreon, where we'll also be doing a question and answer um, later. And we'll send that email out, um, but not too much later. Like you'll want to join Patreon now because this show will be a few days after um, we're recording. So by the time all that comes into play, um, you probably want to pop over there to um, sign up to get the invitation to join if you did want to ask us questions live and all that kind of stuff. So we'll put a link in the show notes, but you can also just go to patreon.com slash the whole view. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Am I a robot or Stevie Nicks? Stevie Nicks. Sweet. That's my life goal. <laughs> yeah, now you sound um, kind, of, kind of gravelly like you did last week, but it doesn't sound robotic. That's great. I hope that I keep this, you know, I just, I this want new... this Miley Cyrus, Stevie Nicks voice, like a hundred percent of the time. I'm, good. I'm calling it, I call it sexy morning voice. Yeah. Mm. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's journey, the free to play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.